morning, Northbrook. If you'd like to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 3, kind of a, an unusual passage maybe for Easter Sunday, but uh, hopefully you will see why I chose it. It's good to have the Chandras back and the Browns back, the uh, uh, vaccinations, you're past your time and, and uh, it's a little more safe for them. It's, I've missed them, it's good to see them. I want to begin reading in chapter 11, I mean chapter 11, chapter 3 and verse 11. Uh, just backstory to this, where we're jumping in in verse 11. Peter has just healed a lame beggar, and uh, he was asking for money, the beggar was. And Peter, if you remember, if you're familiar with the story, says, silver and gold, I don't have. But what I do have, and he heals him. In the power of Jesus' name, he heals him. And um, in verse 11, we pick up with that story. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses and by his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. I was planning on a totally different passage. As a matter of fact, I told Scott last week a different passage. And um, this, this week I was reading in Acts and I came across this and there was something in particular that really struck me as I was reading this, something that was different from what I've ever thought before while I was reading it. But here is Peter with all these amazed Jewish people, amazed because this one that they've known for so long who has been lame is now walking. His, his ankles are strong, his legs are strong, according to the previous part. And he's walking fine. And even Peter says that this man now has perfect health. And they're stunned by what's happened. And they're wondering what's going on. Who is this Peter and, and what has happened? And Peter, in, in such an endearing way that Peter has, uh, starts out by just crushing them. And he says, he, re, he refers to them and reminds them of who they are. You're men of Israel. And your descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And as I thought about that, there was something that hit my mind. 
that. Maybe it's because we've been in Hebrews for so long and we've been talking about promises for so long. But when, when I think there's a part of at least Peter's purpose in this is to remind them of what's been happening for a very long time. That God made a promise to Abraham about a seed and a great nation and a land. And he repeated that promise to Jacob. And he made promise I mean, to Isaac and he made promises to Jacob along the same line. I don't think that this is simply a recitation of their, of their genealogy or their heritage. But he is wanting them to remember something. That God made a promise to three important people. He, did, he doesn't mention Moses, which they often, do, they often do. He doesn't mention Moses. He just mentions these three forefathers to whom he made promises. And he's setting them up basically by saying, you were the recipients of the promise. God promised to Abraham. God promised to Isaac. God promised to Jacob. So why are you standing here so amazed that this one's been healed in the name of the one who was promised? And I, I think that because of what he follows here. He's, after he reminds them of their heritage and that the promises were made to the God, by the God of their fathers and that that God glorified Jesus, he then says, you know what you did with those promises? You know what you did with that promised one? You put him to death. You put the promised one to death. And even worse than that, when Pilate, who just happens to not be a Jew, when Pilate the Gentile had spoken with this one, Jesus. He was ready to release him. The Gentile could recognize that this one was innocent. The Gentile who did not re- was not the recipient of the promises. The Gentile who hated Jews because he was hated by the Jews. He's the one, guys, who said, I don't find any fault in him and tried to release him. But you stop that. You who are the recipients of the promised one and had the promised one in your presence and should have recognized the promised one. You delivered him over. You denied the promised one in the presence of a Gentile. Not just amongst yourselves, but in the presence of a Gentile who was not near to God. You denied him. And he goes further. Let me tell you again who you denied. The Holy and Righteous One. This was no ordinary man, folks. This Jesus, you know, was holy and righteous, yet you denied him. 
And even further, you asked for a murderer to be released. How unjust are you people? You people who claim to follow the law, how unjust are you to have a murderer released while you killed not only an innocent man, but the only holy and righteous man who has ever lived? And if that's not bad enough, let's go one step further. You killed the author of life. Immediately, my mind thinks of creation. And I think that's part of what he's meaning here. All that exists was because of Jesus. He is the creator. But beyond that, every breath we take, I think is what he's saying to them. You killed the one who has sustained your every breath. But that's not the end of the story. God raised him from the dead. That's what jumped out to me in this passage. And I've read this so many times and I never noticed that before. You took the one who was promised. You took the one who was holy and righteous. You took the one who was the author of everything we see and you killed him. But God raised him from the dead. And this is what struck me with this passage. Is, is this concept of mercy is what hit me. I ended up in this passage because uh, I, was, I was reading through Acts and also because then I came across it um, on a corresponding passage of to this we are witnesses. But there, this, what jumped off the page at me was the idea of mercy. We don't, we don't think about mercy that much. We, it's not a word that's really part of our everyday speech and language and conversation. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserved. Grace is giving us what we did not deserve. Mercy is him not giving us what we did deserve. I think I said that wrong first. Mercy is God not giving us what we did deserve. We ask for his grace. We thank him for his grace, his graciousness towards us when he does for us what we know what we, d- we didn't deserve for him to do. When he gives to us what we know we didn't deserve to have. But mercy... Here, here he's just condemned these people. All the things they did. If anyone should have known who Jesus was, it was them. I mean, even if you think back when, when the wise men show up in, Jeru- in Beth- uh, Bethlehem or in Jerusalem, and they're asking where we're going to find, and the king Herod says, to his people, go find out where he was supposed to be born. And they come back and tell him where it was supposed to be because they knew it wasn't hidden. 
And they knew where this person was supposed to be born and they send, they send them off, intending to kill them when they come back. They had so much knowledge and they had so much information. It was not a mystery in the sense of this king was here. It was just flat out there. And he was doing everything that had been prophesied that he would do. And what they deserved was not what they received. Think about it from this standpoint. What if, it, what if you were God and you sent your son and you sent him to do all these beautiful things for these people and you sent him to die for their sins? You say, well, then it just played out the way it was supposed to. They're not culpable. They just did what God had planned. Mm, Yeah, we can jump to that and excuse ourselves. But the reality is, Peter says, God gave you the promise and the promise was in your midst and the promise was unfolding right before you. And you rejected God and you rejected the promise and you rejected his son and you actually killed him. How would you feel if, if you were God, just for a moment? I mean, there's a whole lot of problems in this analogy, I know, but just for a moment. How would you feel if it was just your kid and your kid was treated that way? And here's the question that, that pierced me. Would I have brought... Jesus back from the dead for these people. You follow what I'm saying? Would I have brought Jesus back from the dead for these people? So some people might say, well, what's the big deal? I mean, he died and he paid for sin. So what's the big deal? It was all taken care of, right? It was a done deal. And and in a sense, this is true. If Jesus had only died, he did die to pay the penalty for the sins of sinful people. He did take the wrath of God on the cross. He did atone for the sins of people as the Lamb of God. So what's the big deal if he didn't come back from the dead? What would have been the big deal if God had said, I'm just going to leave him in the grave? Would Jesus not have gone back to his father? I mean, he didn't. Think think about it this way. Jesus didn't have a body before he was born into a body. Okay? Jesus had not existed in eternity past in a human body. God himself does not exist in a human body. The Holy Spirit does not exist in a human body. He doesn't have one. And Jesus had not had one. And when Jesus was born, he became human and God. 
So if God had left his body in the grave to rot, could Jesus not have just gone back to the way it had been forever? And probably been fine that way. And wouldn't sin have been paid for? I guess I would argue probably yes. All kinds of theological questions that revolve around that, but I would say he died. He died as the Lamb of God. He died as a, as a final sacrifice. So what's the big deal that God raised him from the dead? And, and how does that connect with mercy if our sins would have already been dealt with? And, and this is what struck me as so important. Terry read this morning from 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, if he had not been raised from the dead, we would only have hope in this life. That's an interesting statement by Paul. We would only have hope in this life. And we would be of all men most to be most pitied. And as I was thinking about that statement and thinking about what if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, I have to take Paul at face value and say we would only have hope in this life. There would be nothing for the future. And, and possibly that might be able to be interpreted as we would only have hope with God in this life for fellowship with him in this life and not in the next. You see, with the resurrection from the dead comes a new creation. The creator will recreate. Everything that has been touched by sin. Uh, Isaac made the comment Friday night that we sweat because of sin, because of the curse. He said, God said to Adam, the ground will work against you and it will now be by the sweat of your brow. And it never struck me that maybe people didn't sweat before the whole industry that would be out of business. Antiperspirant would be gone. There is going to be a day when human beings are raised from the dead. Their bodies will come back to life. Every person who has ever trusted in Jesus for salvation by faith and forgiveness of sin will be raised from the dead. And every body will be made new. Every body that has been touched by sin will be made new. Every human soul that has trusted in Jesus will be reunited with their body. 
not a disembodied spirit with a harp and wings on a cloud somewhere. When your loved one died, they did not become an angel. They became a disembodied spirit that feels naked, according to Paul. That's one reason I have a problem with a lot of these afterlife stories where people feel so peaceful and calm outside of their body as they float around and go towards bright light. Paul in the Bible says that to be out of the body is to be feeling naked. You say, well, how would he know? He's the guy who died and went to be with Jesus in heaven and then was told to go back. And go back to this world. He knows what it's like to be out of the body. And he says, it's uncomfortable. It's like running around naked in public. It's not peaceful. It's not calm. It doesn't feel right. But because Jesus rose from the dead, your body is going to be fixed and healed. And it could possibly happen in this life, but if you're trusting in Christ, it will positively happen in the next life. And all of this pain and all of this sorrow and all of the death will be no more because the author of life rose from the dead. And all of the creation that groans right now, you know what? There will be no derechos in the new heaven and the new earth. There will be no threats of any kind. There will be no tornadoes. There will be no earthquakes. There will be no hurricanes. It will not be too hot and it will not be too cold. It will be perfect. There will be nothing that dies. Because Jesus rose from the dead. And I want to tell you something. We don't deserve that. That is pure, unadulterated mercy. It was pure, unadulterated mercy that Peter stood up and preached to these people again. It was pure, unadulterated mercy that God did not wipe out everyone who was involved in the crucifixion of Christ. And by the way, that's you and that's me. Because Paul tells us that it was our sin that nailed him. So as I've been thinking about Easter. I've been thinking actually for the last several months about the topic of mercy. I remember when I could pray nothing else but God show us mercy. That was all that I could muster. Was God show us mercy. And we pray for mercy when life is bad. We ask God to show us mercy when things are crushing us. Just a little bit of mercy. And I want to say to you simply 
this resurrection morning, this Easter, God has shown you so much mercy. In the midst of all of the junk of this life, all of the pain and all of the sorrow and all of the lost relationships and all of the brokenness in which we move through and in day to day from the moment we wake to the moment we go back to sleep and even while we're asleep and we're dreaming horrible things. God is overwhelming us with mercy because he did raise his son from the dead. So is, is this Easter thing important? Yeah. But it's just not Easter. The resurrection from the dead is our hope every single day, not just in this life, but in the next. I turned 60 this year. I hate it. I honestly hate it. I did not have a midlife crisis when I was in my 30s. I'm having an end life crisis or something. I don't know what it is. I hate the idea. I'm not just trying to be funny. It's bugging me. But the reality is I'm one step closer, just like you are, to to fully understanding the mercy of God. And as you reflect on this Easter, and as you think about life as you move day to day, remind yourself of the mercy of God. He did not leave Jesus in the tomb. And in its most simplest face, cutting aside all of the potential theological debates that surround if Jesus had not risen from the dead. What would be, what would not be, at its simplest understanding, he did raise from the dead. And because he raised from the dead, all of the promises of God are going to come true. They are coming true. They will come true. Both the judgment promises for those who do not know Christ and the blessing promises that are far beyond our comprehension. Remember the mercy of God this Easter. Let's pray. Father, your goodness is so often questioned by us as human beings. We struggle with the things that touch our lives. When we're in deep sorrow, we struggle with the concept of your goodness. When we deal with sickness and disease and pain, we struggle with the concept of your goodness. When we lay loved ones in the ground and watch the dirt cover their casket, the ache that is deep inside of us sometimes causes us to question your goodness. Father, your goodness has been displayed in your mercy in ways that we could not have ever understood if your son did not go to the cross.
and in ways that we will not ever understand if your son was not raised from the dead. So today, I thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us. I thank you that your mercies are new every morning. I thank you that you do not forget us and that when we cry for mercy from you, you hear us, those of us that are your children. You hear us. And you don't say to us, well, dummy, I'm always merciful. You're patient. You love us. And ultimately, you point us to your mercy. God, help us to remember how merciful you have been. There is so much we deserve that you kept from us in Christ. And I'm thankful for your grace because there is so much you've given us that we do not deserve. Help us never to forget who you are, how kind you are, and how good you are. In your son's name, amen.